Hello, everyone, and welcome to Health Law Talk presented by Shahardi Sherman Williams. Before we get started, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube, linked in the description below. We hope you enjoy this episode. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Health Law Talks here with Shahardi Sherman-Williams. And we have the Rory Bellina health lawyer here, Conrad Meyer, on the other side of the mic. And uh, very special, I guess, Rory, what'd you call it? Multiple part series here? Three part series that we're planning on. It's an excellent topic, very timely. And we've got some really exciting guests today. Absolutely. We're going to be doing a three part series on COVID and mental health. And and this is going to be something that we're going to start off. We're going to break it out in uh, in three parts. The first part will be about COVID and mental health issues dealing with adolescents. And then we're going to be doing uh, COVID and mental health with families and how families are coping with, with mental issues with COVID. And then finally, the uh, COVID and mental health with elderly patients. Right. So right. elderly. And so today, we're going to do it with COVID and mental health and, and adolescents. Is that right? That's today's topic. And we have two experts with us on the phone, two experts. Uh, I'd like to introduce everyone to uh, Tanya Stewart. Uh, Tanya is a licensed clinical social worker who is the owner of Genesis Behavioral Health in Baton Rouge. Uh, she is uh, has extensive outpatient uh, experience with adolescents and, and comes to a more holistic approach uh, with treating uh, adolescents and mental health. Is that right, Tanya? Did I get that right? Yeah, that's right. That's correct. Welcome, Thank Tanya. You for- Thank you for coming on. And then we have the, the, the esteemed Brandy Klingman. Klingman, uh, Miss Klingman is another LCSW, and she is the owner of St. Christopher's Addiction Wellness Center. Uh, and she has, uh, again, extensive experience in, in treating uh, adolescents and uh, uh, mental health issues dealing with adolescents. So we, we brought Brandy and Tanya on the show today to really talk to us about uh, COVID, mental health issues with adolescents. Brandy, how are you doing? Doing good. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you guys. Thank you for joining. So I guess the, the, the first question is, is do you both, are you seeing this in your, is this an important topic? Absolutely. I think right now, more than anything, our adolescents are really suffering, um, especially with this the situation with the COVID and trying to adjust to <clears throat> not only the mandates based on school, but just their environment and home changing. Parents are struggling themselves. Kids are trying to find ways to, to not only keep their academics up, but to stay connected socially. So it's, been, it's definitely been a struggle. And we've seen major increase in um, acuity in addition to adolescents and families reaching out for help. And I have a, I have a question before we, we jump right into this. I think it'd give our listeners some good background information. Can you tell us a little bit about your practice and what you were seeing pre-COVID and then talk a little bit about what happened when COVID hit? And I know that's a loaded question, but when COVID hit, we'd love to hear about how you shifted to a, a virtual practice or a telemedicine practice, and then really what, what changed with the patients you were seeing. A great question. Great question. Okay. Well, I have an intensive outpatient program. So it's right before the kids have to go into a higher level of care of residential where they disconnect from the family and sometimes even inpatient where they um, have suicidal, homicidal, or gravely disabled symptoms. So we try to do um, a lot of comprehensive treatment. We work with the families, are required to participate in group therapy. In addition to the kids do about six hours of group therapy um, in our program. So just to give you an example, in 2020, we serviced probably about 55 adolescent families. 
And then um, so far this year in 2021, we have assessed 120 families and have served already 82 families. Wait, so we're we're halfway done the year and you've already doubled for this year? Correct. Correct. That's, mm-hmm. that's incredible. I'd love, yeah, I'd love to hear about that. Can you, add, and obviously going back to my question, tell us about what, what have you seen and caused this kind of doubling and what do you attribute it to? I think it's a delayed response from COVID. I think when it first hit, it was a lot of unknown things and kids were kind of enjoying being home. But over time, I think the families... Um, we're seeing a lot of stress with work and also if they had their own mental health or substance abuse issues, those were exacerbated. And I think it just trickles down to the kids. And so what we see is a lot of isolation with the kids and during adolescent years, connection is very important. And so they were kind of disconnected from maybe their role models at school or their peers, activities that may have helped them to kind of just deal with, with being an adolescent in general. And so I think now what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of more self-harm. And when I talk about self-harm, kids um, cutting themselves, hitting themselves. um, Like burning themselves. Wow. Yeah, lots of um, overdose pills, um, attempts running away, substance use. So our program, a lot of kids usually – they fail at an outpatient level of care with their provider, and then they bump them up to our intensive program. We have kids just coming straight into the intensive program because outpatient one-on-one counseling wouldn't be enough for them. So, Brandy, let's go back in time to March 2020. I'd love to hear about your practice and how your practice probably was forced to you know, shift almost overnight or over a, a week period of time when we all had that stay-at-home order. And, and kind of what did you see in the mental health world when you had to switch from what was traditionally probably a face-to-face therapy to a virtual or a telemedicine therapy? Right. No, that's exactly it. But we were, I can go back to March in my mind immediately and just a panic because my outpatient clinic, we were servicing thousands of patients in around the Louisiana area in person, traditional outpatient therapy, coming in to get your meds managed by a physician or see your counselor. And I think it was around March 14th or so that we knew this was coming and we had to decide how are we going to go forward? Well, the government hadn't made a real clear decision as to how we're going to do telehealth. So we were just kind of ready to batten down the hatches at the office. We were prepared to, are we going to be giving out medication for months at a time? Are we going to be giving endless refills? How long will this last? And we had a meeting with my providers to decide, you know, it's not in the patient's best interest to give them some of these medications, these mental health meds for months in advance. That's just not the best interest. They need to be checked on. So we had already decided internally no matter what happened with the government or the the country, that we were going to keep tabs on our patients somehow. And we had decided FaceTime or calls that way would have been the way to go. And then thankfully, you know, they came in and made the, the rules just kind of wiped off the board, basically, that we could do telehealth openly. And there really weren't that many structures or limitations around it. So we just decided that that was what we were going to do to make sure that we could keep eyes on our patients. So you had already decided that you were going to jump into, like you mentioned, the FaceTime or the calls 
before you know what Conrad and I recognized and kind of all the the rules that you mentioned, like you said, were thrown out the window when you know prior to COVID, there were very strict restrictions on how you could have a telemedicine visit, how you could bill for it, um, certain software you had to be set up, where you had to be located. There were a lot of these rules in place, and like you said best, they were kind of just thrown out the window. So your practice already decided. Look, we care about our patients. We're not worried about the billing part right now. Let's get this correct and get them treated. So, moving right. forward, moving forward in our timeline, Tanya or or Brandy, either of you could jump in here. Moving forward, when you heard that those restrictions were lifted and you could use FaceTime or Zoom or Skype for a visit with your patient, was that was were you ready for that or did you have to get some things set up and 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 kind of were you excited about that? I've heard from a lot of providers that they were excited that finally things that they thought would help pra- their practice were being allowed, but then some of them weren't set up. Some practices didn't have enough devices or didn't have strong enough Wi-Fi or different things like that. So talk about how you you pivoted on such a short notice and, and moved over and how it made you felt. Well, well, I'll be honest with you. I remember standing in my copy room and John, one of my clinical director, told me we need to start looking at platforms. I was in denial. I said, what? We're not going to have to do that. No, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And uh, thank goodness I had some young people working for me because they were able to understand this technology and get us on pretty quickly. It took us probably about a good two weeks to transition. But when you're doing telemedicine with adolescents, it's even more complicated because of the safety issue. You know, they, it, the parents had to be at home while you were doing the meeting, because if an emergency happened, we had to contact the parents so that they can get to the adolescent because we were off site. So there were a lot of things that we had to learn about telemedicine. Um, we had I didn't really want to do it. I didn't enjoy doing it. It was something that I never thought I would do in my practice until COVID hit. I think I remember talking to you around that time and kind of thinking the same thing, like we were stressed out trying to figure out how things would go. But I was excited about the opportunity to to utilize any method to connect with our patients, because I remember I was so nervous about just losing contact with our patients and our families, because that would have been devastating to me. So I was prepared. I think I'm kind of like a soldier in that way. Like when like really when shit hits the fan, I'm ready to roll and I, I do well at that point. And I figure like at the end, we'll figure out what are we supposed to do to stay in line, but we got to survive this battle. And so I was really ready. And then since I've loved it, like I'm, I love the idea that we can utilize this to reach patients all over the country. They don't have to miss a half a day of work to come see their doctor. They can call in in their car on their lunch break or in the counselor's office at their school rather than miss something to kind of connect with us. Now, I'm in an outpatient setting where you're, you know, a more intensive outpatient. They're going to need more connection. But the outpatient setting, we got to immediately triple our caseloads. We got to see so many kids and in ways that we wouldn't normally see them sitting in their PJs while they're eating breakfast. Mom or big sister is walking in the background. You hear the parents yelling. You can hear what's going on in the house. It was just totally different world. Like we were really excited for it. And Brandy, you hit on some great points that I want to ask you or Tanya to elaborate on. So walk us through, obviously we don't need any details or would expect that, but how did these visits go? I mean, did you see things that you weren't seeing in the clinic (laughs) setting or did you, Uh, that might be a loaded question. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Did you, did you, uh, you know, tell us the the pros and cons of it, because I think, 
you know, I think everyone had to like like Tanya. You said you weren't really looking forward to it or ready for it, and and but Brandy, you were. You were Tanya. You were forced to do it, so it kind yeah. of forced in certain providers to do this teletherapy. And and I'd love to hear some of the the things that you loved about it that you want to stick around, and then also some of the things that you felt were really burdens where you felt that you weren't given the best treatment and you wanted that patient in the room with you let me get easy pros and cons yep yeah yeah no we i can say some some pros were obviously we're able to reach out and see people we weren't able to see before and in more environment that we had never seen their home environment the cons were eventually this is i'll just say this my office had to put up a disclaimer at the beginning of our calls that said you have to have one closed you have to be sitting in an appropriate place. You have, your camera has to be turned on. It has to be light because we were seeing all kinds of things that sure, we really sure. would never have expected. You know, sure. someone answered a call with no clothes on or sitting in the bathtub. I'm like, no, this is not, this is not okay. <laughs> so some parameters needed to be put in place for administrative purposes. That That's fair. Yeah. Sure. yeah so, so let me ask you this. So, we've got the the new technology out, right? We cut through the regulation. You're in COVID. Um, Brandy, you're seeing more patients and reaching out to areas that you probably haven't before. You know, Tanya, you're, you're adapting your practice model to, to meet the, to meet the new, I guess the new parameters of where we are in, in COVID. This is more of a question about the, about the kids that you're seeing. What what would you say would be some of the top issues that both of you are seeing now mm-hmm. with COVID and and the and the children uh, with these mask mandates, the school mask mandates, now even some of the school required vaccination mm-hmm. rates, uh, online classes. What what are some of the the, the top things that you're seeing w- coming into the, into the practice? And I'd like to throw in another one. What did you see? right when everything started because i'm sure it's, it's it's evolved it's evolved throughout so if you could walk us through from march 2020 to now kind of as regulations and vaccines and masking mandates have all been out kind of walk us through what's been going on with these kids yeah well what i find with the with the adolescents is that with this year the school year just getting started also Many of the kids and parents have chose to continue the online schooling. The schooling has adapted to do like a little hybrid, which we've also done in our program, always offering either a telehealth option or an in-person. So some of the schools have um, opted to do the same. And what we're finding is because of the, the, the new pandemic and how it's spreading so rapidly, parents and kids feel more comfortable staying home. So that's a majority of what our kids are doing is, is not um, reconnecting back physically back into school. So the masks have not been um, an issue so far. But what has been an issue is trying to engage. I can't imagine them trying to engage in a school mm-hmm. lesson because when we're trying to do group or individual with them, these kids are diagnosed with ADHD. They um, are not regulated on their meds as much as they would be if um, the teachers were involved telling the parents, make sure that the, the, the kids are taking their medications appropriately. So the lack of focus and engagement um, via telehealth has been a struggle for us with some adolescents. Mm-hmm. And then they also know how to split screens and play their games while right. they're you know, right. thinking you're paying attention to them, but but they're really not. So 
Um, I have I have reluctantly um, conformed to the new today. And so but that is not how I prefer to do practice. But we do offer the hybrid model at my agency. And Brandy, what about you? Yeah, we're offering a hybrid. We prefer them to come in if they are local and it's available to them. But again, ours is outpatient. So it's we find it's equal, easy to see them outpatient via telehealth. We're able to do that. But something that I do think shifted since the beginning of COVID to now is the level of concern and their fixation. You know, I think in the very beginning, we were all very scared. Nobody really knew a whole lot about the disease or the illness, and everybody was just kind of in it together. Whereas now it seems like there's something different every week for them to come in upset about. You know, so some of them, sometimes they're coming in, they're upset that they have to wear a mask. And then sometimes someone's coming in upset that someone else is not wearing a mask. You know, mm-hmm. so it's, we're getting both sides of that. And there's so much heat on us as providers. They want us to take a stand for them or to write them a note or to say that they're they're um, medically exempt from this mask or that they have to be around only people with masks. Everybody wants some kind of letter to document whatever point of view they're going on. And it's just a lot of pressure on us. Mm-hmm. And they came out. My husband's a teacher in our town. And so I see both sides, you know, the teacher sides who are trying to do both the virtual and in person and then also the healthcare. They came out in our area saying, OK, well, you have to have this mask on or you have to have a note signed by any doctor. So then they're flooding my office asking for us to sign these notes, you know, so that they could be exempt from the mask. And it's just so stressful for them as a person going through life, trying to figure out what to do and then putting it on us to say, okay, well, this is what we're going to decide as medical professionals. Mm -hmm. So it's just a different type of game that we're playing now of just how do we take care of them? How do we meet their need and keep them safe, but also from this virus too, you know, and keep the public well. So, so one of the things that, 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 that we're hearing, and, and I mean, just as a parent myself, is and I want to see if you're both seeing this, you know, boots on the ground in the trenches with your with these to the children, is the fact that the virtual class itself, like the kids aren't in school, so they're not interacting with other children. There's no social play. There's no um, there's no talking. And when you talk because they're wearing a mask, they can't see others' expressions. So there's that. They know does that handicap children's you know you know mental health growth? Mm-hmm. Is that something that y'all are seeing too, or is it, what do y'all think about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that kids already um, use a lot of screen time is what I call it. And that's gaming, computer, cell phone, social media. And then you add on the the isolation of not having in-person contact and then the mask not being able to read body language. So a lot of these kids, kids already suffer with social skills and adjusting and communication. And so now that they are withdrawn from that, I feel like that's kind of what we're seeing is an exacerbation of their mental health issues, the isolation, which causing the depression, which causing the anxiety. And um, some of these kids who maybe have thought about self-harm are actually now doing it. And they have less supervision also. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think like we've seen kids, Mm -hmm. if you think about stage of development, they are their peers at this age. They're not, not even separate. Like I remember whatever my friends liked, I liked, whatever they drank, I drank. We all ate the same thing at lunch together. You know, and right now they're completely isolated at home most of the time in this hybrid version or this like online schooling. And they have nothing but what they're looking for online. And you can find anything online that's, mm-hmm. you know, healthy or unhealthy. They can find ways right. to self-harm or groups that are engaging in eating disorder behavior. And so you're seeing some of the worst come out in these kids when they're 
left to their own devices, you know? So Brandy and Tanya, going back to my timeline, if y'all haven't picked it up by now, I'm a very linear thinker. So I think of things <laughs> in, in timelines straight. Um, so let, so I'd like to analyze this a little bit more uh, going on along my timeline. So let's go back to when the mask mandate came out in Louisiana and obviously nationwide for most of the states. How did you see that affect children? Because I've got three children of my own. Conrad has two. And I know the effect, the effect that it had on them, you know, from little things of we need to have masks in both of our cars and in their backpacks and remembering them to, you know, they can't see their friends' faces or it was hard for them to understand in the classroom because they're trying to read the teacher's lips or, or follow expression. So talk a little bit about the mask mandate itself and where, I mean, we know the, the health reasons behind it, but where do you think it, it, it's kind of hurt or it's caused issues with some of your patient population? I can, I can speak to the outpatient groups that we're seeing and just also my experience as a parent with kids, young kids. I had a baby during COVID during that time. So, you know, I'm very aware of like mass culture around kids and, what I know is like if there's an underlying anxiety in a child around illness or safety, the mask just exacerbates that. They're a little bit ner- more nervous. They're worried they're going to catch something if they don't wear the mask right. Or if they see someone without a mask, they're p- tugging on your shirt saying, Mama, Mama, or Miss Brandy, why is this person not having a mask on? What's going to happen? So there's that little underlying anxiety can be blown up. But then also, if they're just in an environment that's stressed and anxious, then they're going to even be more stressed and anxious. So really, it depends on how the mama and daddy are handling the mask thing. You know, the baby that I had during COVID, he was born during a time where you had to wear a mask. I wear a mask during delivery and I wore a mask after, you know, visiting him in the NICU. That's all he knows. And I'm not anxious about it. He's not anxious about it. He can see a mask and not be upset. And I think that's kind of the tone. If the family around and the community around the child is calm and responsible and even, then the person is more likely to respond to the mask in a calm way. Whereas if you're anxious and you're fighting and you're scared, then that's that's going to be picked up by the kid, you know? Yeah. And I agree with Brandy. A lot of the kids' attitudes and um, about wearing masks is definitely a direct reflection of how their parents are handling it. Sometimes I'll have conversations with the adolescent. It sounds like I'm having it with their parents. Yeah. So they're really listening to um, what their parents say. They're taking on their attitudes and their point of views. So I I encourage parents to be mindful about what they're saying um, in front of their kids and just be age appropriate because we do not want to exacerbate their anxiety about things that, especially that they can't control. Well, I think, let me ask you this. So, and I think those are all great points. And and I think when we hear from, from both of you about your patients and, and what you're seeing in the trenches, uh, one thing that I think gets left behind and, and to Tanya's point, um, parents who maybe who, who don't think their kids have any problems. So what advice would you give parents in this in this pandemic world and mask mandates and online learning and, and things like that. Parents who's, who's, who maybe they thought their children never had any anxiety or any problems. What would you advise parents to do to, to be on the lookout for uh, so that maybe they could head off at the pass, right? Maybe some problems that, that maybe haven't manifested, but are sort of, you know, fostering with the children. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I think one of the things why, why we see such an increase this year is because parents kind of waited. They they felt as if this was something that was going to pass. 
um, some of the symptoms they were seeing with the kids. They normalized it as adolescent or childlike behavior. And it's not until this year where the, the symptoms got out of control. So I would encourage parents not to wait. The first thing that they definitely need to do is if they have any kind of concern about their adolescent, they need to start. I would start with the school. I would start with the school counselor and let them know what they're observing and compare it to what they see in school. And if there is some concerning behavior or they're not at their baseline like they used to be at school, then reach out to a professional. Um, and it doesn't mean anything like they, they're going to need medications. I think that's a big thing. Parents don't feel like, um, well, they feel like if I get help, they're going to put my kids on meds. It's just a, a, an assessment period. It's just finding out, you know, is this something that it's just an adjustment or is this the onset of something more severe? So, so the, so, follow, well, the follow up on that, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm jumping in a little bit, like head first, right? Um, how would that manifest? So in other words, I, I hear what you're saying. But the, to the parents who, who like, like I said, maybe have never had an issue before, what manifestations would, 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 would show that they might say, okay, wait a minute, that's not right, or wow, maybe, am I really looking, you know, should I have some concern? What, what would be some manifestations? Or things to look for. Right. Anything off of their baseline functioning. So I describe baseline functioning as their normal adolescent behavior prior to covid um, and it could be that the kids, adolescents, they like to be in their room. They don't talk much. They just answer your questions. Um, you know, that's kind of your normal adolescent behavior. But if your adolescent used to come down for dinner and doesn't come down anymore, spends more time on screen times, is more agitated, you're hearing um, more verbal aggression or seeing some physical aggression, some isolation, those things out of the ordinary need to be assessed by either a school counselor or someone in the community. And like I said, it could just be something that's out of the ordinary from what they're used to functioning as. What happens is parents kind of write that off as adolescent behavior or they'll, they may um, have their own issues that they don't have time to focus on what the adolescent is going through. It's not until it's too late. And when I say it's too late, the, the cutting behavior has started, the substance use started. So harder for the providers, harder for the families and harder for the adolescents to kind of get out of that. So just to be more proactive than reactive to the symptoms. So I think we've we've covered the, the, the mask part, and you've given some really, really good insightful information on what you saw during the, the, the mask mandate and issues you've seen. So I'd like to also go jump now over to the vaccine side. So as of today's recording, the vaccine's only approved for, I believe, 16 and older, uh, the, the major vaccines. It hasn't been approved for anyone younger for that, um, which I assume includes some of your population. But even forward-thinking, have you had parents, um, you know, approach you for advice on should they get their kids vaccinated? Or, you know, what are you hearing regarding the vaccine for this lower population from what Conrad and I are hearing and reading is that within possibly by, you know, the end of October, it might be approved for that 6 to 11-year-old range or 6 to 16. So what do you, what's your opinion on the, on the vaccine and how you think it could affect the, the your, mental health, the mental health of kids? Well, I think for my parents, they they are very encouraged and want to have their adolescents vaccinated, especially going back into school and doing group therapy. So most of the 
all of the parents um, have been on board or have a strong opinion about do they want the vaccination or not. They're definitely not asking my opinion, but they do want to know, am I vaccinated? Um, and so we are all vaccinated in our office and, and we don't mind telling them that. But we make it a point not to ask them if they are. We just um, ask them if they have any, any symptoms, fill out a questionnaire, take their temp and they have to wear the mask and socially distance. So we want to respect everybody's privacy with this. We don't want them to feel shamed or embarrassed because some of these adolescents, it's not their choice. They may want the vaccination, but the parents don't. So we try not to make that big of an issue. We just try to give um, do the precautions as necessary. I'm surprised you have all your parents are on board for it because I've had like both sides, you know, in the mm -hmm. office where some of them are coming in and they're you know, they're saying things that I, I don't think are true. I mean, I'm not a physician in that way, but I don't think it's true that they're planning micro trips and these kinds of mm -hmm. things. But they're coming in and they're saying that in session. And it's it's really not my place to correct them. It's not our physician's place to correct mm -hmm. them on every small belief they have. But it is something that's very much there and they're they're just spitting it out, you know, and mm -hmm. and I think that they're anxious and upset and they feel unsafe. That's the bottom line of it. But they're coming up with all these words that they're they're researching online for themselves. So we do have people who are vaccinated and who are being sound about what they're doing. But even on that side, we'll have them where they'll say, well, we're not coming in here unless we know every single person that's in here is vaccinated. I'm like, but I, I can't tell you if every person in the building is mm -hmm. vaccinated or not, you know. Mm -hmm. so, so it's like I I'm kind of getting to both extremes. So, so, Brandy, to your point, and I think I'm going to I'm going to sort of, you know, pigtail off of, off of Rory here um, to to. I guess the question I would have is, 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 is that the anxiety that you mentioned uh, from the parents? Do you see this anxiety transference or transferring to the children? So oh, in yeah. other words, so in other words, now are the children emulating mom and dad, um, yeah. you know, and, and, and are you both now, now let's just hypothetically, let's say we get down to where it's now mandated for 12 and older, right? Do you believe this is going to, you know, is, is it usually an emulation from the parents? So in other words, let's say you have two parents who are pro-vaccine. Are the are you finding the kids are like, oh, I'm great. That's great. I can, I can get my vaccine too, you know, or if the parents are anti-vaxxers, right? They don't want to get the vaccine. Are the kids, is there an anxiety there? Is the transference of anxiety from, from parents to children or are emanating within the children themselves? Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I mean, we know that kids are their relationships. That's kind of how their brain works at that point. They're not separate from who they're around necessarily. So they are emulating who they're around. If they're around and, and absorbing their parental influence and they're around and absorbing their peer influence and they kind of emerge as a, a mixture between the two, you know, is what I see. Like, I, like you said, you saw them mm -hmm. talking, saying things that it sounded like they were parents, that they were just kind of quoting what their parents were saying, but they yeah. say it as if it's their truth. And I see that too, constantly, you know. And that's just the natural setting. I mean, aside from COVID, kids take on their parents' opinion about religion, yeah, about politics, politics sports. yeah, sports, racism, whatever it may be, what they're hearing in the home, that's all they know. And, um, you know, some of it's good and some of it's not. So, Brandy or Tanya, where do you see things, and before we get back to a couple of just generic questions I have on your practice and how telemedicine has helped or, you know, not been in your favor, 
Where do you see things going now? Like like I mentioned, we're in late August. This vaccine hasn't been approved yet for kids, but all indications are that it will be. Um, in Louisiana, it looks like we're coming down off of a, a fourth wave. So where do you see things going? Or if you could look in the magic crystal ball, where do you see things going for your patient population going forward with either getting back in school fully or you know getting vaccinated the mask mandate pop possibly being rescinded. Where do you see things going with um, just kind of the general state of of your of your of your patient population? I think what I'm going to see is probably another increase in numbers of um, families that need treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm seeing. I've been in the field for a little over 20 years, and I can tell you, I haven't seen anything like it. Um, And not only do I see an exacerbation of symptoms, but I see a deficit of providers. Um, We are in a major crisis with trying to get these individuals help. Everybody is not taking new clients, waiting lists two months out, Um, you know, to find a good adolescent counselor, one that includes family. It's very difficult. And so our agency is just busting out. We're trying to do the best that we can with servicing these adolescents. But we have a lack of providers that are able to see these um, clients. So the longer they're they're not being seen, the worse the symptoms are getting. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think we're going to be just seeing more and more of this. I I know like last year, suicide surpassed homicide as the second leading cause of death amongst adolescents um, in that age of 15 to 24. And then the first is accidents. And that's largely made up of substance use induced accidents, alcohol or drugs. And so the first two leading causes of death related to mental health issues is a big issue, you know, for these kids. And I don't see it going backwards. I I do see the hybrid staying, this telehealth option staying in place. I don't think that's I don't think that's going back in the box. You know, I think that's out and we know the benefits of it. Of course, we're going to have to refine it and get better. But I think that'll stay. But I hope to see more people getting help because I know that they're suffering. We know that because they're they're so much increase in suicide and um, overdose. So we just need to make sure that they're getting access to the right care. So let's talk about access, because, I mean, that's a very good point. I would have thought. And I mean, and and Rory and I are looking at each other. We would have thought that 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 telemedicine would have increased access at least double or triple just to your point brandy earlier and so uh, i guess that even with that increase right in the efficiency and the numerosity of patients you're able to see um are you both still bursting at the seams and you and 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 you're telling me that there's still not enough access for parents and children Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I was trying to get a girl in the other day. and She's not bad enough for Tanya, but just needs a counselor. And it's a waiting list of over a month. Oh, wow. Gee, wow. wow. And that's with me asking. Like, that's like, you know, if I'm trying that and I'm on a wait list for a month, a regular family is going to be on a wait list for several months. Yeah. I mean, I can't pull any more favors in the community. It's um, and if I can't take them. I'll, they'll say, can you recommend someone? And I'll tell them, honestly, everybody I recommend, they're six to two months. I mean, six weeks to, to four weeks out. I mean, eight weeks out. So I would just start calling from your insurance list and get the first available. That's not very comforting for me. No, because me I don't, That's scary. I can't even imagine what a, a family would feel if they were they were told that. I mean, so wait, let me ask this to, to clarify. 
Um, when you say there's lack of providers, let me. I want to make sure that our listeners understand. So, so can you clarify? Is it a lack of inpatient beds on an inpatient system? Is it a lack of outpatient spots? Is it a lack of just we don't have enough counselors, providers, mental health professionals to even adequately serve the needs of the population right now? It's all of the above. All the above. And, wow. Okay. And with adolescent treatment, you know, we, the Maples is my uh, residential. It's a psychiatric residential treatment facility that I paired with a hospital beacon behavioral health mm-hmm. to do. We are the first PRTF in the state of Louisiana treating this population. For, for girls only. And for girls. Like that's going to be the issue with that is you can't get girls in anywhere in the country. If you want to send your girl to just a, a female only residential place for adolescents. This is it in Louisiana, you know, and so as soon as she and she just opened up, you know, so as soon as you're full, that's it. That's it for beds. Yeah. So, you know, an outpatient is the same. Like I couldn't get in with someone for outpatient therapy. I'm actually hiring another person to just out. Therapy at Legacy. So you know, a, a follow-up question to that. Let me ask you this. So we're, we're, at, we're bursting at the seams, it sounds like, and, and from hearing from both of you. Uh, but, but has I mean, overall, though, we, would you both agree that telemedicine has increased the number of access you do have? For sure, for, yeah. Okay, so that's, that's a definite. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so you yeah. would agree, then, that, that telemedicine and the way they cut the regulations here – um, across the board, because it, it came from the governor's order and from the federal mandate at OCR for HIPAA and, and, and things like that. So, and we're not going to get into that now, but but I guess you would agree that that, that the cutting of those regulations and the ease of use of, of using a Skype or a FaceTime has has really made a difference in your in both your practices. Yeah, yeah. I mean, time is time. So whether they're seeing um, in person or via telehealth, it's still the same time that's taken up these providers. And we just they just don't have enough. And they are also trying to balance their own home life with this COVID and their kids. And so um, right. it's it's a struggle. It is. Sure. Yeah. So you mentioned we talked we went back to talk about telemedicine. And I just had a question for you because I know that, that Tanya, you said you weren't a fan of it in the beginning. And, and Brandy, you kind of were. So. Have you enjoyed the relaxed regulations? I mean, do you hope that they stay? Do you hope there's some refinement or some changes? Or are there some things that you haven't enjoyed with it, how it's so kind of loose and relaxed right now where you can use these, um, you know, different different types of software? Kind of tell me about where you'd like to see things go from a regulatory standpoint on telemedicine or teletherapy. Yeah, I think that I, I like the flexibility. I mean, Again, most of my programs that I do are in person because I'm residential, so so I, I actually live with the girls. But um, one of the things that I, I hope that insurance does is continue to support telehealth with reimbursement um, because it, they haven't made it easy. And yeah. they're making it very complex and with, you know, addendums and codes. They, they need to streamline this for providers because many of them have even gotten off of insurance companies um, panels because they can. And the demand is so great that now they can private charge um, clients. They don't want to, but the insurance companies definitely don't make it easy for them to receive um, reimbursement. Right. Now, we're seeing the same thing. The reimbursement thing I'm hoping that they continue to make it easier as time goes on and remove some of the barriers like 
the need for authorization beforehand. I know that they relaxed some of that in the beginning, and now they're putting some regulations back in. I'd like to see national reciprocity across states. I'd I think it's silly that we're licensed in this state. And if my patient goes to Texas or is evacuated, I can't see them in Texas if I don't necessarily go through all the hoops. Um, If I live on the border between here and Mississippi, that I should be able to see my patients, that kind of thing. Um, You know, some of those small little things I think we can fine tune as time goes by. But I do think they need to be, you know, looked at. So let me ask you that to that point, uh, Brandy, on on the on the uh, telemedicine, the licensure. So. Like, for example, I know with physicians, right, we have we have the State Board of Medical Examiners. With with social work, you have your own Board of Social Work, and I'm sure that's with each state. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. And so, and so like, for example, in Louisiana, you know, when we talk about origination site, distance site, um, for physicians, for example, who want to come into the state, they have, you know, who are, who are licensed, for example, in Texas or, or Mississippi, uh, to your example, and they want to do telemedicine services in Louisiana, they have to get that special purpose telemedicine license. So are you finding that the social work boards from various states haven't caught up to allow this telemedicine reciprocity? Uh, is that what you're seeing, like in Mississippi and other? Is that what you're looking at in, in, in terms of I'm- your board? I have both. I have physicians and social workers and counselors because it's an outpatient clinic. So I'm used to having to navigate it for all different licenses. Mm-hmm. And it is it is difficult for social workers. It's not as difficult for social workers as it is for counselors. And it's even less mm-hmm. difficult for physicians. But, you know, there's different states that, you know, have their own boards. And so then we're having for each little nuanced license to call that board and get approval or get the paperwork done and submit it to that board if my patient has been moved for whatever reason across the country or is on vacation or got stuck on a COVID, you know, quarantine in Mm -hmm. California, then I'm having to like work with these state boards for these different tiny little license things. And, and I don't know that that's necessarily the best idea, especially if we're opening up telehealth nationally. I think that maybe we should start to have national boards that we answer to, not necessarily just the state boards. And, of course, the counter argument to that is a lot of boards, you know, they want to protect their own backyards. And, 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 and so we have a lot of political swings going on within the boards within that state who don't want to open it up to this reciprocity or the, or like the, the, the special purpose telemedicine license at the physician level. So, but, uh, but so you're finding barriers to access really from the, from the regulatory standpoint at the boards of different states. Yeah, I find it slows my staff down. So it just slows us down. And I don't necessarily think it should be no holds bars kind of thing, but I think that there's got to be a middle ground And of course, we want to protect our state and we want to protect our providers and our patients in this state. But we have to acknowledge that the world is different now. You know, so we're we're a nation that's all over now. Our patients are everywhere. So we have to be able to access them with some ease. And it's just going to I know it's going to take time. And I'm trying to encourage my staff and my physicians, my therapists to take their time. But it will take time right now to kind of just navigate through unknown waters. Yeah, I mean, Brandy, that, that's a great point, and, and has gone, Conrad brought up the licensing issue is we hear that from our physician providers as well as, you know, every everyone that, that's licensed, that has a licensing board, can, it can cause delays. So that's really good information to hear. So, you know, kind of on a closing thought uh, from both of you, if you could, you know, continue going forward in time, what's something that you'd love to see stick around or what's something that you still would like to see changed so where you 
as providers can continue to give the most access, the most valued access to your different patients, you know, going forward from this time? Um, for me, I think that, um, again, working with the insurance companies for reimbursement for the telehealth, but, um, I would like to see more providers taking advantage of the telehealth. Also, there are some that just do not um, feel comfortable either way. They feel like they don't want to be in person anymore because of the the fear of COVID. Mm -hmm. And then you have them on the other side um, who likes the the telehealth and and doesn't want to be in person anymore. So I think to having our providers be a little bit more flexible with and meet the needs of our clients so that we can have some services for them. Because once they reach out for help, you have to strike while the iron's hot. So you've got to be able to swoop in there and just kind of manage the crisis. And I think that's what we're getting at to the point of we're not even able to manage the crisis and it just gets bigger. So I'd like for more expansion um, and more flexibility with the providers, the insurance companies. And overall, I do, I am adapting to the telehealth. And <laughs> that's good. That's good. <laughs> unwillingly, but I'm doing it. Uh, ready. Mine sim- I mean, mine's similar to Tanya's. I, I mm-hmm. would like to see that insurance continue to reimburse. And even I'd like to see uh, a little bit more training for us as providers out yeah. there around mm-hmm. telehealth. I think that so many young providers, I remember in March, I was on bed rest, you know, and stressed out myself. And they're all calling asking, what about HIPAA? What if we accidentally violate HIPAA? Everyone was so scared of that. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see more training around that, around telehealth and encouraging people to, you know, take the opportunity to use it if they can. I I am in no way a techie person, you yeah. know, but I just know that people need help and we've got to step up and be able to provide help. Right. So I'm willing to just kind of roll with this tech and and move forward as long as we're helping more patients. I'd love to see legislation support um, social workers and therapists as a parity kind of problem. You know, this is killing more Americans and um, other issues in our country at times. And so I just think the mental health parity is really important. I'd love to see energy and money and attention go to that federally. For sure. Good answers. Good answers. And, 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 and listen, I, I think all of this has been very helpful. Uh, I wanted to ask one final question and, and I want to just kind of have you both for, for our listeners here, especially parents, because of the access issue, right? Because of the barriers that we're seeing now, what resources would you both recommend to parents um, who might have to wait a month, two months, three months to see someone for their children? What what would you recommend to those people, uh, those parents and, 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 and even the kids? What resources are available to help in any way uh, that they could maybe point to? I've, I've been advising them to reach out to the school counselor and maybe doing a check-in in person. But I've also empowered the parents to get some um, literature from, you know, they can go to the bookstore and work on cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, relaxation techniques, coping skills, um, things like that, that they can at least get the kids to start working through and then maybe processing it with the kids. You know, I think parents are the kids' best therapists. They just don't know it yet. They feel like you have to have a degree. But I feel like parents, if they can just engage and connect with their adolescents, it can soften some things up for them until they're waiting um, to see an outpatient therapist. And I would also encourage parents not to wait. 
when I tell parents, here are, this, here are the referrals, please call to schedule, it's two, three weeks before they schedule. So they need a, to, to jump on it immediately, um, get some services through school with a school yeah. counselor, and gaining some literature for them to work at home with their adolescent. Yeah, mine, I, I agree. I think they can go online. There's so many great books now. You can download it to your Kindle. You can listen to some podcasts about parenting. I think the very first thing that you can do as a parent is start having meals with your kid at home because or giving conversations during carpool rides, giving carpool rides. That just starts conversations and that can lead to a healthier relationship and more understanding of what the kid is going through. And that's what I think is the parents' biggest fear is they don't understand. They don't know what to do. So if they could just start having some conversations, open list, opening and listening up to the kids, just asking questions and hearing their feedback, not giving your critical feedback as a parent as we want to do. I normally want to tell my kids what I know, but really just listening is the most important part. Yeah. Excellent. I, excellent. Excellent. I think uh, I want to say, uh, first off, this has been, I mean, Rory, extremely helpful I think for, for not only me personally as a parent, right? But I think this has been a, I mean, a, what a timely topic. Yeah, and this has been really good. Very great information, Brandy and Tanya. Thank y'all so much. Yes, yeah, so I want to personally thank Brandy and, uh, and Tanya for coming on the show today. Uh, COVID, mental health, and children. Uh, I couldn't have asked for a better uh, a better uh, panel of speakers. I mean, you know, in the trenches dealing with this every day. And so we want to thank you for coming on the show today. And we're going to come up. I think we have our next part. Part two is going to be coming up soon. Uh, we're going to be focused on COVID, mental health, and the family unit. Yes. So uh, we'll be we'll be pushing that uh, soon. But we want to thank both of you for coming on today. And, uh, and we really appreciate all of your time and effort. Thank you all. Yeah. Thank no you for problem. having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Health Law Talk presented by Shahardi Sherman-Williams. For more information or to contact us, please visit our website linked in the description below. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube linked in the description below. Thank you for listening.